The Prod Box brings experiences from myself, industry professionals, colleagues, senior leaders and discussions on key topics within the product management and technology space from a player and coaching point of view, aiming to help us all learn and succeed in building great product management teams resulting in great software products. So welcome and enjoy. Don't forget to subscribe or join our mailing list at thepodbox.co.uk. Welcome to the Prodbox episode two, bias and the importance of testing, diversity and inclusion. So as we move to artificial intelligence and machine learning being a key part of our day-to-day lives via Internet of Things and the technologies that we use, there is an ever-growing importance in understanding and working against bias and ensuring our teams are diverse to bring together different thought processes and experience to ensure we are being inclusive in our technology. So we can introduce bias into our products subconsciously as algorithms, products and code written are a reflection of us or whoever's building the software or product to a certain extent, of course. So there are a lot of examples of bias within the world right now, which shows us how bias has affected some products out in the wild So this episode explores how experiments, testing and creating hypotheses can avoid these pitfalls. So there are many problems caused by ignoring bias and there are loads. If you just do a Google, you'll find a few and not necessarily just related to software. So, for example, if you're building a product, a software product, and uh, you're using Colors that maybe people who are colorblind can't see or identify with. So it makes them difficult to navigate your software. That's not being inclusive because you're not taking into account people who are colorblind. You're, you have to review the colors that you're using in your software. Or for example, symptom checkers telling women that they're having a panic attack and men that they're having a heart attack that's bias. You know, you're implementing bias without subconsciously, without actually thinking about it. Or for example, smartwatches where the, the, they're too big for women's wrists, um, or VR causing motion sickness in women. There are loads of examples and all of these are caused by inherent bias and a lack of diversity when products are being built. So let's talk first about diversity in product management. So I did a bit of a Google and just Googled what is wrong with algorithms. And a number of uh, articles came up and I'll read a few of these titles. So we have from the New York Times, artificial intelligence is a white guy problem. Uh, we have from the new scientist, discriminating algorithms, five times AI showed prejudice. From Wired.com, photo algorithms ID white men, fine, black women, not so much. Washington Post, a federal study confirms racial bias in many facial recognition systems and casts doubt on expanding their use. Even more recently, 
a little bit closer to home here in the UK with the situation on A-level and GCSE results. So of course, it's 2020, everybody was locked down, coronavirus is taking over the world. So students in the UK didn't sit exams this year because schools were closed following the coronavirus lockdown. So uh, teachers were asked to supply for each pupil, for every subject, an estimated grade and a ranking compared with every other pupil at the school within that same estimated grade. So these were put through an algorithm, which also factored in the school's performance in each subject over three years. And the idea was that the grades this year, even without exams, would be consistent with how schools had done in the past. And then the teachers' rankings would decide which pupils received top grades in their particular school. So the official body of Qual said this was a more accurate way of awarding grades than just relying on the teacher's assessment. So they found that in England, 36% of entries had a lower grade than the teachers recommended and 3% were down two grades. And I think overall in the UK, so including Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, uh, it was about 40 or 45%. So what actually happened was the downgrading affected state schools, so public schools, much more than the private sector. So basing it around previous school performance, a bright student from an underperforming or underprivileged school was likely to have their results downgraded. And this wasn't because of anything that the students did, you know, they uh, were bright students. They were predicted a good grade by their teachers. It was only because the algorithm said so, because of the location of the school, because of the performance of the school over the last three years. So it really doesn't take into account the individual. It just says, oh, you're an underperforming school. It's located here. Therefore, you're going to get a lower grade. So this is why private schools it worked very well for them because, you know, past performance was always very good. They're very selective. So these students had an, an, an advantage, you know, so it's likely that a lot of the students that might have um, underperformed at private school were awarded better grades. And the response from the education secretary was, you know, he had acknowledged that there were significant inconsistencies in the grading process apologized for distress and they were originally going to use the same algorithm on GCSE results but because of the uproar and outcry on A-level results they didn't which is absolutely the right thing to do. So there is an importance of having a diverse and inclusive team and testing everything So there are some really good programs out there to encourage minority ethnic groups and women to get into technology, be it product management and other roles within the technology industry. So there is an organization that I worked with called Deltas. They are an ethical group dedicated to promoting diversity and ethics in legal technology and security. So at the moment, I'm in the legal tech industry. So this was about um, going into schools. So I did a, a presentation at an inner city school in South London, uh, an all-girls school, which were predominantly underprivileged 
ethnic minority young girls to really just open their eyes and show them the wonderful world of technology. And it's not all about coding in darkroom. You know, there's many positives about working in the tech industry. There's so many roles available in the tech industry and just really getting them excited about tech and maybe thinking about technology as uh, a direction once they finish university. And it was really funny um, going into the school and, you know, I first asked the question, what does everybody want to do when they leave a university? And you get a mixture of answers like uh, a footballer. Um, yes, it was an all-girls school. <laughs> a footballer or an influencer. Um a doctor, um, I had a database administrator, which was, which was in- interesting. Uh, but it was really just to re- get them excited about the world of technology and the world is your oyster within tech as well. But the primary objective of Deltas is to eliminate barriers within education and training whilst increasing employment opportunities from people from all background and lifestyles. So, you know, something that I'm really keen on supporting. So there's Ada's list as well, which is for all women, trans, intersex, non-binary, agender, gender variant, and they are a visibility platform and marketplace designed to help members to collaborate and progress professionally. Then we have women in tech conferences, um, which happen every year. Of course, it didn't happen this year. Um, and a lot of conferences are obviously happening digitally, but hopefully when we, um, get out of the craziness that is 2020, we can get back on uh, really attending these things in in person and doing that networking, that all important networking. But let's get back to the episode. So a lot of examples that I mentioned today, the GCSE results, um, looking at, I mean, the A-level results and the GCSE results, looking at some of the examples of bias and algorithms and, you know, you can just Google it and so many examples come up. So it's really down to us in product management to try and eliminate that bias by eliminating our own bias, trying to base what we're doing and what we're implementing or building on our tests and the results of our tests. So the importance of segmentation and demographics is really important. There's a saying, if you are targeting everyone, you are resonating with no one. So it is key to understand who your product is for, understand what they value and what they're willing to pay for that value. So there's no point to marketing to clients that don't value or need the product. So you can segment by what the customer needs, by the customer size, geography and other demographics and identifying who your buyers are. Who are your end users? Are they tech users, business users? And then creating personas based on these profiles. And of course, if possible, talking to clients reflective of those personas. So personas are helpful because it helps to keep the who in mind throughout the ideation to the creation of the product and different features within the product. But do bear in mind, you do not need to know everything about your personas. You can do a rough sketch, do a rough outline of this in order to create your initial persona, then test your hypotheses later by talking to your customers. So moving to more evidence-driven culture and hypothesis-driven design in the organization. 
So I am a fan of hypothesis driven design and where possible, I would like to use it and want to use it and uh, suggest and advocate for its use. So what is it? Hypothesis driven design is basically a process. So it's all about beginning with a question or assumption, prioritizing, hypothesizing, experimenting, learning, building, repeating. Uh, It's really just being inquisitive and trying to understand your customer, extract that information and get all the answers you can to your questions in order to build the best product that provides the most value to your customer. So there's a number of steps that you think about. So the first thing is question, 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 question. Get all of your questions and assumptions together. The goal is to order your questions and try to be fully informed before you start creating solutions. So rather than, and you may have some people in your organization that say things like, oh, I know what the customer will want. This is definitely what they want. Oh, I know what they want. That is incorrect. Uh -uh. Do not pass go. Do not collect £200 because you are not the customer. It's the most important thing to remember when you're building software products. You are not the customer. You either know too much or you know too little. So always test and ask the customer, do usability testing, things like that, which I'll talk about later. But the first step is questions. Get all your questions, you know, create and anything. There isn't a stupid question. Just put them all down on a board and just get all of it out. You know, it might be things like what features do our uh, customers value the most? Is X feature more valuable than Y feature? How do we improve our user journey on um, the homepage? How do we reduce the steps on our homepage? How do we improve the user experience? Uh, How do we uh, increase engagement on X page? So our customers spend longer looking at X feature or whatever it may be, just get them out. The next step is prioritizing and organizing your questions based on the value to the user or your perceived value, because actually at this point you might not know yet because you haven't actually tested anything. So it's all about what questions you might think are the most important to ask first or um, what questions are related to which features you feel the user may value the most. It's basically just trying to organize your questions into what you want to test first. And then you have your first set of questions. Maybe limit it. Uh, to maybe 10, dependent on how many questions you have, uh, but just prioritize it, limit it. And then you can also phase these. It's iterative as usual. You know, you want to question, prioritize, hypothesize, experiment, and then do it again. Question, hypothesize, you know, because based on learning the first time round, uh, you want to question the second time round because maybe you didn't get it right, you know, based on what you've learned. So it's all about what should we look at testing first? Then we go on to create hypotheses based on the questions and what we believe to be the answer or solution to the question. So um, a typical hypothesis framework is we believe that X solution for X persona will achieve X question, um, which is 
you know, you can create as many hypotheses as you want and test as many hypotheses as you want. But my suggestion is to limit it. But it's all about um, just trying to understand the user, trying to understand how they will use your product, creating the hypothesis, hypothesizing the solution and just testing if you're on the right track, essentially. Once we have our hypotheses developed from our questions, we can identify how we will test these hypotheses. So what experiments we will run, is it surveys, in-app testing, A-B testing, usability testing, you know, user interviews, are we doing focus groups, are we doing tree testing, you know, if you want to use things like uh, a good tool to use for doing tree testing is something called Optimal Workshop, very good tool that I've used in the past. Uh, but essentially, you just test, test, test. What are your results from your testing? What have you learned from it? You can then start building your product and then continue, continue to test. It's all about testing and discovering and developing. So you may refer to that as using dual track agile because you're doing a discovery phase and a development phase at the same time. And you're doing those iterations. So you're continuously testing and you're continuously developing and you're looping in that feedback from your testing into development, which is a very efficient way to deliver value quickly. So speaking of testing, uh, I just wanted to touch a bit on usability testing and why I find usability testing sessions so useful. They provide so much information. You know, I'm, I'm really a fan of qualitative data. So user interviews, uh, usability testing, focus groups, things like that. Quantitative data, you absolutely need to use. You need to measure specific metrics by the usage of your features and get that quantitative data. But nothing beats qualitative data. Nothing beats talking to your customer, really. So I I really find usability testing sessions useful because you can create a prototype based on your assumptions or based on previous testing get them to tell you how they would expect to use it and get them to tell you what they value most or what features they value most. And, you know, collate all of that data from user interviews and really try and build the best product you can because you're learning and then you're building, then measuring and you're repeating the process and you end up with a product that customers love. So metrics and measurements are crucial but of course must be approached carefully. So we need to understand how we measure the success of our products. So this is focusing on the quantitative data. Are we looking at percentage of increase of sales, looking at support calls, looking at upsell opportunity? You know, what are we measuring? How do we measure success? Is it retention? Is it engagement? Um, however you choose to measure it, we need to define that And it does definitely, absolutely play a part in the development of your product and ensuring that your users are receiving the most value out of it. Uh, But then you're also aligning your metrics to your overarching business goal. So how do we measure success of our products? But at the same time, how are we recognizing return on investment as well? So one 
method, which I mentioned in my previous episode, is one metric that matters, which is defined from your overarching business goal. And then you break it down into smaller goals or objectives, creating a sort of metric ecosystem that measures towards the business goal uh, and is aligned to it. So in conclusion, with our growing product portfolio, we need to embed segmentation, demographics and personas into your day-to-day world of products and, and what you're doing and how you're building your products. But then you also need to recognize that you can implement bias into your products and understanding that in order to eliminate that, you have to test, test, test everything and talk to your customers as much as possible, incorporating the value and incorporating the business problem without uh influencing them and implementing your own bias. Secondly, it's very important, I feel, to have a team which is made up of many different people from many different areas of life, walks of life, different experiences, different thought processes in order to build a rounded product that is inclusive. Thank you guys for listening to episode two Please let me know if you have any questions, comments, feedback, and do so via thepodbox.co.uk. And I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode and please share with others who may find it interesting or useful. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our mailing list at thepodbox.co.uk and join the conversation on Instagram or Twitter at thepodbox. See you on the other side.